Lord, what is my confidence which I have in this life? Is it not you, O Lord, my God, whose mercies are without number? Where has it ever been well with me without you? Or where could it be ill with me when you are present? I would rather be a pilgrim on earth than possess heaven without you. Where you are, there is heaven, and where you are not, there is hell and death. There is no one who can help me in my needs, but you only, my God. You are my hope and my confidence. And although you allow temptations and adversities, yet you order all things to my advantage. In my trials, you should be loved and praised no less than if you fill me full of heavenly comfort. Lord, we agree with your servant Thomas Alkempis' prayer and ask that we would be those who find our truest desire in you. Whatever you do, whether you give or take away, that we would say, blessed be the name of the Lord, for you are worthy forever and ever and ever. Grant us faith, Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Job 32. How is everyone? A little mild tonight, maybe? The, the autumn breeze is coming in. You feel it? Maybe in your throat, a little tingle? Um, I don't know. I guess we're having issues with the computer or something. But um, the, the, the passage tonight is Job 32 to 37. And um, boy, before, before we break into that... Um, I want to give a really big thank you to all you who participated in the family room last week because, boy, I was surprised. I had no idea that was happening. I thought we were saying goodbye to Richard, which we did, but then you guys bamboozled me with um, some appreciation there, too. And um, But, boy, I thank God for you guys. I thank God for a church family that I feel like I belong to, and I know so many of you have expressed that you feel like you belong here as well. And that's, that's what we're for. That's what we're here for. I think you guys know my heart is not to build an empire with my face on it, nor is it yours. I'm sure you get enough of it. Um, it's it's to, it's to build a body and community of believers where we can have the spirit of Barnabas in the church, the son of encouragement. And boy, did that happen last week. The son of encouragement where we break bread together, we pray for each other, we share the scriptures together. And there are other plans, there's some people I've been talking with where we're actually going to get in the homes eventually. I know I said that at the new year, but I don't do things quickly. I move like a turtle, but I'm hard to, I'm hard to break like a turtle too. <laughs> That's what I think at least. <laughs> uh, Job 32, um, the title tonight is um, The Folly of Novelty. The folly of novelty. And we come to this really interesting part of Job. Uh, I actually had someone email me questions about it reading ahead, which is cool, but it's also terrifying. They're asking really good questions about this section. I'm like, I, well, I'll let you know when Sunday comes. Um, yeah, this is, I just want to warn you guys before we start um, that this is a hard one. This is a really hard one. And I have, I have, um, I have responses to this text that I don't think I'm capable of actually saying. And I don't think I'm going to try. I, I, in my notes, I've tried not to say what I'm feeling because it will come out wrong. Um, but just so you guys know, this text invokes in me uh, some 
long reflections and sometimes it's just hard. The, the, what do the Proverbs say? The heart of a man's like deep waters. Who can draw it out? Uh, sometimes it's too deep to bring out adequately. So um, this might be one of the sermons you forget very quickly. And I'm okay with that. Sometimes that happens. But um, this is a very interesting passage. So Lord, we ask for your guidance and wisdom as we come in here. Show us what to learn. But above all, not just to learn with our heads, but to show us how to draw us into union with your son tonight. Amen. You guys know what happened on October 31st, 1517? Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And of course, that started the Protestant Reformation unintentionally. It wasn't his plan to break from the church of Rome or to um, create what had happened, but the church didn't want to listen to him. They had no choice. Was change needed when Martin Luther nailed those theses on the door? Oh, yeah. Change was needed. But was the Reformation the best outcome for change? It probably wasn't. It's what had to happen because the leaders of the church did not want to listen to Martin Luther. It's what had to happen. But what would have been better is if the church moved in a direction of returning to Christ unified. That would have been ideal. It is said that a reformational church is always in reformation. If we've changed something, then we will always be on the change. Uh, That makes sense. So the Protestant Reformation is always reforming itself. Now, there have been discussions among some people out there in the, I will say, the fringes of Christendom. That's not to say they're not significant or unknown. They're very significant and well-known. But I say the fringes of Christendom because they do not stand in traditional Christianity as I understand it and as I think history understands it. They're out there pushing Christianity these weird edges and extremes, but they're very prominent and well heard. And among them are discussions of, are we in the midst of a second reformation? There are many who think that Christianity needs to be in the midst of a second reformation. Things aren't working. We need to change things. We need to reform things all over. And so these fringe very much prominent voices who live on the fringes of Christianity are leading a reformation of their own. Um, Is change needed today in Christianity, in American Christianity specifically? Yes, it is needed. Is a reformation the best way to do this? Probably not. The best way is to return to Christ unified. But more on this to come. So here we go. Job chapter 32, we come to this character named Elihu. (laughs) Before we talk about Elihu and what he has to say, let's update ourselves on what's happened in this book. It's been a grand sweeping saga, hasn't it? In chapters 1 and 2, the Satan, who's apparently this member of this divine council in heaven, whose job it is to test and try the hearts of people, says, 
Oh, I'll test Job for you. And in chapters one and two, he takes away Job's wealth and he takes away Job's health to see if Job would love God without health and wealth. Job so far does. Chapter three, it was his happy unbirthday. Do you remember that? It was the passage where he curses the day of his birth. Woe that I was ever born. Happy unbirthday to me. To which his three friends who have come, it took a month to get to where he is. So he's been suffering a long time. He's in the, the garbage dump of the city. Uh, and he, they come to him. And when they hear his happy unbirthday lament, they cannot remain silent. And they began to speak to Job in a wave of three cycles of debates. Wave one was chapters four through four through fourteen. The friends, you might remember this, they invite Job to an altar call. Each friend gives their spiel and then says, Job, why don't you come and repent? Job, why don't you come repent? Job, why don't you come repent? To which Job insists, Why do I need an altar call when I'm not lost? None of this has befallen on me because I sinned or anything. Well, in round two, chapters 15 to 21, the friends are not so convinced. So seeing that Job is not humble enough to come forward at their invitation and their altar call, they now assume, oh, Job's a hard-hearted, wicked person. So in chapters 15 to 21, round two of the debates, they basically terrify Job with images of how the wicked will not prosper, but will be punished by God. To which Job continues to insist, but that's true of the wicked, but I'm not wicked. Which launches round three. This was last week, chapters 22 to 31. Round three, you may remember, Eliphaz starts off like normal, but he is so desperate to get Job to see that he's evil and he's punished because he's wicked, that he actually fabricates sins that Job must have committed. Job, surely you did one of these, and he names them. Then Bildad speaks, and Bildad has six meager verses, the shortest speech in the whole book. The friends are running out of words. Zophar doesn't even speak once. The friends have nothing left to say to Job. Job and his patience and persistence has prevailed, yet the friends aren't convinced. And so they stand at the stalemate. That's how we ended last week, the stalemate. And it's begging for a judge to step in and deliver the verdict. Now, Job has been crying out that God would step in. Let me have an audience with him so that I can lay my case before him. Why did I get this? Why did I deserve this? What have I done? Speak to me and tell me. I want to know. So we would expect that God would hear Job's cry and step in now. There's silence. They're done speaking. Where's God now? God doesn't show up still. The trial of Job continues. Not only his sufferings, but his questions. But, but still, God will not speak to him. Elihu, instead, is the one who enters as the judge of Job's case. Now, God will step in. You know the end of the book, I hope. And if you don't, well, guess what? Next week, we'll hear God's turn. But before God steps in, Elihu steps in. Because, well, two reasons. Elihu must serve a purpose. We'll look at that. But second, God does not have to answer our beck and call. And that's one of the reasons Elihu must torment Job just a little longer. 
Because God comes when God comes. Not when I say, answer me. I've been calling forever. Oh, now the friends are done. I'll speak, Job. No, God is going to come when God comes. But here's Elihu. Now, who is Elihu? There's no mention of a fourth figure until all of a sudden he steps in. (laughs) People have wondered. Um, Actually, let's be introduced to him, and then I'll tell you who he is, or who he isn't, or what we don't know about him. (laughs) Chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men, Job's friends, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Like, we have nothing left to say to you, bud. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer to Job's complaints, that is. Although they had declared Job to be in the wrong, but they, the point is they couldn't get Job to stop talking, which means that Job didn't see their viewpoint. So verse 4, Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they, the friends, were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Do you think he's angry? I think we read about four times there that he's burning with anger. And so then Elihu speaks. So who is Elihu? I had so much fun this week, in a way, except for the pressure that had to come to an answer. It wasn't fun. But there's so much debate. So basically, my commentaries that I've relied on throughout the study were both split down the middle on who Elihu is. But, well, that's helpful. (laughs) Now now I'm like left as a third party to settle their dispute. So here's, here's a summary of the two ideas. One idea is that Elihu is a positive figure who's sent by God basically as his mouthpiece, as a prophet, to, to balance Job's view. Because Job has said, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. But Job perhaps has spoken a little bit out of line at times, maybe a little irreverently. And so Elihu is sent by God as a prophet to put Job sort of in his place, to prep Job for the coming of God, which is in chapter 38, and to get him to be ready to be humbled. So in that, in that sense, Elihu is like John the forerunner, John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. Elihu is here to prepare Job for the coming of God's visitation. I actually really like that view. The first commentary I read took that view, and I liked it so much. I thought everything I knew was wrong, and I was ready to go with that. Then I read the other commentary. Another view, um, this other one says uh, that Joe, or Elihu is a negative figure. He's a fool whose words will be quickly and suddenly <laughs> corrected by God when he appears in chapter 38. Uh, that Elihu represents the judgment of humanity upon the suffering people of God like Job. But then in chapter 38, God represents God's judgment on his suffering people. The world will say one thing about God's people, but God gets the last word. Remember, we've talked about this before. Uh, this is Christ. The cross was humanity's judgment of the Son of God, but the resurrection was the Father's judgment about the Son of God. God always gets the last word. Well, is Elihu a prophet then? I wanted him to be a prophet. Um, There's good reasons for seeing him as one, but there's also good reasons for not. So here you go. Here's five reasons he might be a prophet. 
You notice we just read that there's a genealogy attached to him. No one else in this book has a genealogy. And if you have read the Old Testament or even Matthew chapter 1 at all, you know the Bible loves genealogies. And it's big on genealogies. And if someone's important, you tell them where they came from. So there's an indication that Elihu's important. He has a genealogy. Further, he's a buzzite, which doesn't mean he has short hair. It means that in Genesis chapter 22, verse 21, um, one of Abraham's nephews was buzz. It could be that he is a descendant of Abraham's nephew. That, that's a stretch. We don't know that. But the name's connected. It could be. But also interesting is that Buzz's older brother, his name is Ur. And that's the name of the land in which our story takes place in. So Elihu may be connected to Abraham. And if that's true, it doesn't mean he's a prophet, but it does give us a positive outlook on this character. Um, second reason he might be a prophet is that his name, Elihu, means he is my God, which could be the narrator's way of saying here is a good figure to look at. He is an example. Third, Elihu gives four speeches. The friends only gave three, Zophar only two. Elihu gets four. And no one answers Elihu's speeches. Unless we count God's coming as part answer to Elihu and part answer to Job. Uh, fourth reason he might be a prophet is that, as I already intimated, he's like John the forerunner. He's, he's the forerunner to God's coming. In some ways, prophets were like that, preparing people for the coming of the Lord. Um, and then fifth, um, God does not correct Elihu. We'll see at the end that God corrects the three friends, but he does not correct Elihu. He does not say anything negative about Elihu's words. With all that in mind, he may not be a prophet because... While God does not correct his words, nor does God commend his words, like he commends Job's words. Elihu thus becomes this ambiguous, hazy figure with no judgment either way. Second reason he may not be a prophet is that, um, why would Job need correction? If he's here as a prophet to correct Job, my question is, and I couldn't find anyone to answer this for me. Well, there were weak answers. Uh, but Job chapter 2, you might remember this. I made a big deal about this when we started it. Um, in Job chapter 2, verse 10, we were told that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Which was the first word, which was this, what our narrator's summary before Job's long dialogues and all the debates. This was his summary. Job does not sin with his lips. Then in Job 42, verse 7, when Job's done talking... We're reminded that Job has spoken rightly of God. That's Job 42, 7. God, that's God's verdict. So the narrator seems to frame Job's words with, he speaks correctly. Why does he need a prophet to come and correct him? Uh, fourth reason he may not be a prophet is that there's no prophetic trademark. And what I mean by this is that in the Bible, the prophets all have a sort of they're distinguished from normal people in various ways. One is miracles, like Elijah, Moses, they work miracles. Uh, one is they speak directly with God, like Moses. Moses is, is very clear. He speaks directly to God. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all have these encounters with God. We see nothing like this with Elihu. If the author wants us to see him as a prophet, there should be a stamp of this person speaks with God. He is actually the mouthpiece of God. Um, there's, uh, so sometimes miracles, they speak directly with God. Or the classic, and this is absent in Elihu, the phrase, thus says the Lord. Absent. 
finally, um, he may not be a prophet because he doesn't actually give us any revelation. He says a lot of words, but there's nothing actually new in his words. Now, if God needed to send a prophet, a prophet would come with a message, with a vision from God to deliver something that the people needed to hear. All prophets had a unique message to the people. Elihu doesn't seem to have anything to add to Job's agony except agony. (laughs) And uh, even more to the point on this is that actually we know that prophets sometimes were granted access to the divine council when God meets with his angelic beings and hears their commissions and their reports from what they've been doing around the world. An example of this is 1 Kings chapter 22, when King Ahab is supposed to die and prophet Micaiah comes before him and Ahab's like, tell me the truth, Micaiah, should I go to battle or not? Then Micaiah finally says, fine, I saw God and the sons of God assembled before him. He saw a scene like we see at the beginning of Job. And he says, I heard one of the spirits volunteered to deceive Ahab to die in battle. Micaiah saw a revelation. He had inside information on what God is up to. Elihu has none of this information of the Satan and God just having a dialogue. Otherwise, he would have told Job. So I side for those reasons that Elihu's not a prophet and that he's a negative figure. In fact, that Elihu is basically, this is my opinion, he's basically a fool playing or pretending to be a prophet. I think he poses as a prophet, but I do not think he is God's prophet. And we have a world full of this. We have a Christianity full of people who know what we need to do. But are we seeing the fruits of Christ in them? Do we have a sense that God has given them revelation or that they're spewing off their opinion because they are angry at the older generation's failure to silence the critic? So, chapter 32. Elihu's first... um, he first starts off with an apology. I didn't want to talk, but you guys made me. That's what he basically says. Verse six, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and let many years teach me, teach wisdom. But it is the spirit of man, the breath of the almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. At first, he's humble. Let the older speak. They have wisdom. Then he's like, oh, I'm disappointed in your wisdom. I'm going to speak now. My opinion time. So he basically goes on and continues to say the same thing. I've got to speak. Like verse 19, behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. When you put grape juice in the wineskin, it's stretchy so that when it ferments, the gases are all expanding it. Um, That's what he's saying is like the words are fermenting in me and I'm going to burst if I don't have some vent. So he's going to vent. I must speak that, my, that I may find relief, and I must open my lips and answer. I will show no partiality, basically says, I'm going to be fair, but I'm going to speak. So chapter 33, we come to his first of four speeches. And he begins with his beginning argument. Um, he says, basically, hear my speech, O Job, and listen to my, all my words. Behold, I open my mouth and my tongue. It's just they go on and on about, listen to me, you're going to hear wonderful things. 
Then he quotes Job. And he does this in every one of his speeches. He quotes Job's words. So he was listening. He says in verse 8, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he, God, finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. That's what Job, he's saying. Okay, Job, I want to pick apart what you said over here. So he asked the you know, transcriber to give him that sheet. And, uh, Job, on this point, I want to rebuke you. Um, verse 12. Behold, in this you are not right, Job. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will, not answer none, he will answer none of man's words? And then he goes on to say, Job, God does speak to us. He speaks to us in dreams. He speaks to us uh, in, uh, in visions and in dreams. And uh, he also talks about an angel, how sometimes an angel can come and deliver God's words to us. Job, you are wrong. God does speak. Then he appeals to Job to listen to him in verse 31. This is 33, verse 31. So pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. It's basically like this. Job, speak, if you can. But I know you can't, so just listen to me while I tell you what to think. Uh, So that's his first speech. So he really calls Job out. Now, in chapter 34, we have speech number two. And uh, Elihu's now, he's, he's loving the stage. Listen to this. There's apparently an audience, okay? We weren't really alerted to this, but Elihu seems to be performing. So look at 34 verse 2. Hear my words, you wise men, possibly the friends, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tests food, tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said... I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Now, so are there other people or just the friends he's talking to? We don't know, but he now turns to everyone and says, Now, what man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, and walks with wicked men? For he has said, Quote, it profits a man nothing that he should take the light in God, end quote. I can see Job, that's out of context, but you don't get that chance because Elihu is speaking. So listen to me, <laughs> he says. Now, in verse 10, um, Elihu gives us basically his creed. It's going to sound very similar to what we've already heard, but Elihu thinks this is new. I'm going to do this differently because you guys failed. I got a new way. Verse 10, therefore hear me. You men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Does that sound like the friends? Let me remind you of the uh, the summary of their creed. This was chapter four, verse seven. Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Job, you can't be innocent because you're perishing. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. And here Elihu says, according to the work of a man, God will repay him. 
So, Job, <laughs> you're getting your payment. You deserve this in some way or another. Now, in verse 16, he's going to say that God can judge justly because God sees clearly. Nothing's hidden from God. So, Job, he didn't make a mistake. Okay, don't call God wrong. He sees everything. And then in verse 21, uh, excuse me, verse 31, he says um, that God would relent if you would repent. So, verse 31 Has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose. You must choose, Job, and not I. Therefore, declare what you know. In other words, Job, come clean. If you've done something, just declare it and we'll end this whole thing and God will relent. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like wicked men. And he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Were that Job were tried to the end. He's so upset that the friends couldn't try Job to the point of breaking him and making him confess all his wrongs that he's like, why did we not keep this going to the end? I'm going to keep this going to the end. Oh, he is. He's going to come until we say the fat lady sings. It's more like till the whirlwind and God's voice booms. That's where he's taking this. (laughs) And he doesn't know it. So ironic. Chapter 35, speech number three. Verses one through eight He opens by telling us that God doesn't depend on humans, Job. Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against God? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Like, God's not affected one way or another by your sin, Job. It's not like God's like, oh, Job, you hit me. It's like, God's like so much bigger than you. It's not a big deal. Fly on the windshield. If you are righteous, what do you give to him? So on the other hand, like, what are your good deeds doing for God? It's not like God's like all of a sudden, oh, I feel more power. Job did something good. Doesn't work like that, Job. He's not dependent on us. So that's, that's what he's telling him. So Job, how dare you even think like somehow this has to do with you? Um, and, and he's saying, if God is silent, it's because he's transcendent. It's because he's above all this. Like you're too insignificant, Job, to really even affect God. Now on one hand, Elihu's right. My sin doesn't put God out. The universe isn't turned dark because, oops, there I go again. And God isn't, like, you know, empowered by my, like, I'm giving him PowerPoints by my good deeds. Oh, Brandon did another sermon. Yay, I feel better. Like, it's not, that, right? In one hand, I'm totally insignificant, and I have no effect on the Almighty. Yet, on the other hand, the Almighty cares so much about his creatures that he weeps with us when we weep. That Christ wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And this is where Elihu is wrong. 
Because Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 tell us that Christ humbled himself. He made himself nothing. God is not so transcendent that nothing affects him. He comes and is present among us. And so, yes, on one hand, he's unmoved. But on the other hand, he is moved. He's moved for us, not by us. Verse 9, he's going to say that God's ignored you because your motives are wrong. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call out for help because of the arm of the mighty. So in verse 9, because people are in trouble, they call out to God. But look at verse 10. But none says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? Rather, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. In other words, he's telling Job, look, if you're crying out for deliverance, God won't deliver you because he doesn't deliver us because we want deliverance. He, he, del- he wants people who want him, but he won't deliver people who just want their deliverance. So he's telling Job, you're just using God to get out of this mess. You don't actually want God, which is actually an assault to Job's words because Job has over and over pleaded that his walk with God would be restored again. His suffering has led him to say, I want to be restored, not because, he never said because I miss all my wealth, I miss my healthy body. He says, I just want to hear God again and walk in righteousness with him again. Elihu has completely misapplied his correct theology to the wrong person. Prophets don't mess that up. Verse 36, or chapter 36. Um... Oh no, wait, look at verse 16, the end of verse 35. He says, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. (laughs) Really, Elihu? That's funny. It's ironic. Chapter 36, his final speech. um, His final speech basically is this. It moves in three parts. He, he, He summarizes everything he said. Basically, God is just. God is just, God is just. He summarizes what he said. Then he he closes with a hymn of praise to the creator and then a sermon telling Job he needs to repent. And that's going to be the end of human human voices here. Um, So the summary of his speech, I would like to turn our attention to verse 2 to start because this is very arrogant. 36 verse 2. Bear with me a little, and I will show you. For you, I have yet something to say on God's behalf. Like, I haven't said it yet. (laughs) I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly, my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. (laughs) Compare this to verse um, chapter 37, verse 16. This is his hymn of praise to the creator, 37, 16. Do you know the balancings of the clouds? The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Oops. (laughs) What did Elihu do? He associated his words with the very perfect words of God. Careful to be claiming to speak God's word and not to be speaking God's word. So verse 5, the summary of his um, creed. We've already seen it, but he's going to expound on it a little more. 
Um, but I want to get to the heart of it so we don't take all night in this. Um, but it's verse 11 is where I kind of starred the heart of it. Verse 11, he says, if they listen and serve God, so if humans listen and serve God, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. It's very simple, Job. You will prosper if you do what God says, and you will not prosper if you do not. So, let's do the math. You are a bad boy, Job. So, um, he then launches into uh, God's, um, uh, his praise of God the creator. And 36 verse 22. So, it's a long hymn. It goes all the way down to verse 37 verse 14. So, starting in 36 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men has sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, great is God. And we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Here's a reason. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill in mist, they, they distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on humankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples and he gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike the mark. It's crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. And then he goes on in such a way. He talks about the great thunder in chapter 37, verse 1. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice. The rumbling that comes down from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go. His lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For the snow, he, for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. But tell Lake Arrowhead just in small quantities at once, please. <laughs> fall, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour, he seals up the hand of every man that all men know whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind. Boy, Elihu does not know how ironic he is because the whirlwind's coming. Chapter 38, God's going to speak out of the whirlwind. The thunder, maybe the storm's even gathering in the distance. It's God himself coming. And Eli, who's like, he's so majestic. And it's like, wow, perfect. There's an illustration. Um, or if he is a prophet, then he knows it's coming. and He's preparing Job. Um, uh, where, where did I leave? Well, verse 10. But the breath of God, by the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. End of the worship music. Now the sermon. Verse 14. Hear this, O Job. 
It's a sermon to one person. Stop. Now, if you ever think that I'm doing that to you, I'm not. Um, I would just send you an email. But um, if, if that's the Spirit convicting you, if you ever feel like I'm preaching at you, it's the Spirit convicting you. But here he, though, he doesn't even bother. He says, Job. Hear this, O Job. Everyone else, look at Job while I preach at him. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds and the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind? Can you, like him, spread the skies hard as cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Remember, Job has kept saying, I want an audience with God. And now Elijah is like, do you really teach us what to say? Because if we were in front of him, we feel like we would just, we would just die in darkness. We don't know what to say to him. Verse 20, shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? You talk to God, you get swallowed up before God. Remember Ecclesiastes 5 said, when you approach God's presence, be careful that your words be few. For he is God in heaven and you are man on earth. 21. And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. So is Elihu talking about himself or Job? He does not regard any who is wise in his own conceit. That is a good question. So the reason I have called this message the folly of the novelty is because here we see Elihu patiently listening to the older generation give their wisdom. But he's quickly disappointed with what they have to offer. And so he thinks, well, (laughs) I've got a new way to do things. I've got a better idea. Does it sound familiar to the world at all? You guys started this, you know, in your generation, and now the generation I teach at school thinks that they're better than me and every other generation. And it just, it's, it's the way of the times that young generations believe they have more to offer than the old generations. And here, to be fair, though, I do believe that, that young generations genuinely want the older generations to lead them. But at some point, they get jaded or they feel like they have nothing to offer. And then they've got to take their chance. And this is was Elihu. It's like, well, now it's my turn. And he's angry because their wisdom's inferior. You guys have brought this mess and now I've got to fix it. This is still happening today. And this is happening especially in Christianity. I mean, it's especially happening everywhere in the world, but it is not immune to Christianity. I think the young generation has felt let down by those who've passed Christianity down to them. Quite frankly, I don't think that we have passed much. And I don't, I'm not actually saying that it's your fault specifically. I'm generalizing because I cannot possibly know the way you were with your children or with the generation. I can just tell you what I'm seeing from a distance, the Christianity of our culture. I think that we... American evangelicalism has passed down a hollow gospel to the young generation. 
And I don't think it's surprising that only one in 10 kids stay in the church when they graduate. That's not shocking. Yes, it hurts. It's like, what? Why? How can they not believe? But something about the way we have talked about God has made Elihu's emerge in our culture. This present generation of emerging Elihu's feels let down by Christianity's older three friends. Now, this is not an interpretation of the text. I'm just creatively using it to make a cultural point. Our three friends would be Catholicism, would be Pentecostalism, and would be Evangelicalism, of which Calvary Chapel falls under the Evangelical camp. I think these three, these are the main faces of Christianity in our culture, have not impressed the Elihu's. And now some of you would say, oh, I can see that about Catholicism, and I can see that about Pentecostalism, or you can point your finger at whichever one you want. (laughs) Obviously, you are what you are because you think it's the better one. Um, But they have all failed, including evangelicalism. And I, I think recently evangelicalism has just fallen flat on its face and embarrassed itself in front of our country. Um. We, why? Because we are turning the gospel into secondary issues. We're turning the gospel into political positions. We're making politics and the church like the most important thing to go together. Um, of course, the Catholic church has its scandals going on and Pentecostalism, um, they're not usually in the, in the face all the time, but, but we see weird things and sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes they're associated with the ones that get lots of money on TV and we haven't put a good answer to young generations for why Christianity is the way, the truth, and the life. And so what the Elihu's are rising up to do is they're rising up to say, those who at least still stay with Christianity will say, yeah, 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 no, Christianity is cool and all, uh, but there's a lot of really good and awesome truth out there. So like, let's just merge them. It's called syncretism. It's something ancient cultures would do is they would merge two religions to bring peace and happiness. Um, so yeah, like let's, let's like be Christians, but like, let's also learn from the Buddhists how to pray and let's learn from, um, the self-help experts how to improve our lives. And let's like, we just kind of merge all these things together so that the Elihu's are now basically trying to say Christianity is a project to be improved. It needs to be corrected. It needs to be reformed. I know this because I've listened to a lot of these people. I know this because I've read some of these people. And I know this because I have once trusted one or two of them, only to find out that they're not following the same gospel that I was raised to believe in. Boy, you feel burned when you find that out, huh? We do not need the emergence of something new. I think we look for that. We keep waiting for that leader to come up in our culture and just emerge this new, fresh, exciting version of Christianity for us. We don't need the emergence of something new. We need the submergence into something old. We need to immerse ourselves into what has always been. Or in other words, we do not need to reform our crisis or to reinvent the faith. We need rather to return to Christ and recommit to the faith. For example, 
We're not crisis solvers, we're Christ followers. It looks like this. You find a car stuck out in the middle of the desert on the rocky, rough terrain. That car isn't going to get anywhere very fast. So a crisis solver says, it needs a road. Let's pave a road. Come on, get the labor in here. Let's raise the funds. Let's pave a road to get this car where we need it to go. That's what Elihu's doing. Woo, let's go, let's go, let's go. I have a new way to say this, a new fresh experience. I'm going to make this better. So we get the, the road pavers out. That's a crisis solver. There's a crisis, let's solve it. A Christ follower, on the contrary, looks at that car in the desert and says, what road did you leave to get there? Let's get you back on that road. Let's get you back on the road you were supposed to be on. A lot less effort, a lot less ingenuity, and more getting right down to the problem is that we left what we should have been on in the first place. Brothers and sisters, we are Christ followers. We, we don't look at culture and panic and say, we got to solve this. So we need to make worship hipper and faster and more fog machines. And, or we need to make the sermons funnier. Or All those things are fine, to be honest. Those are fine. But those are not solutions. Um, we do not need to now we somehow like... Uh, Easternize by like like Buddhist Buddhist size. We don't need more. We don't need to just include these like cool, hip, trendy things to try to make us more palatable to everyone else. That's problem solving. But we are Christ followers. We don't look at these crises and say, "Okay, what can we do with this?" We look at these and say, "Oh my goodness, we have passed down a hollow Christianity because we left the road." We started saying, this is how we do church when it's not about doing church. It's about pursuing Christ. It's about Christ being in the heart and center of the gospel and embodying Christ and pressing in to union with Christ till we partake in the divine nature so that we are aflame with the life of Christ himself and we pass life to life, not idea to head. We are calling generations. We're calling our culture. We need to call ourselves. We need to call ourselves back into Christ. We don't need to reform, we need to return. Reformation is just trying to redo the furniture of a, of a falling apart house. I mean, you notice like Elihu basically says, oh, I'm going to, their words didn't get Job to believe, so I will tell them what to say. Like, this is how you do it. Let a young pro show you how to do it. But what Elihu basically does is he just exchanges the lack of mercy that the friends had for the lack of humility that he has. It's one error for another. We can't keep pointing the finger and saying, well, they, they're doing it wrong because they don't do it like this and we need to do it like that and we need to imitate that model or that strategy. When Christ the whole time's like, a Christian is a little Christ. <laughs> the church is my body. Where are you, my people? Proverbs 22, verse 28. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Our fathers have passed down the faith to us. Oh, but their time was different. Yeah, the more I look at the world, I'm like, it's all the same. It's just kind of getting a little worse every time. It wasn't different. We're moving ancient landmarks and saying, well, that doesn't work anymore. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jeremiah 6, verse 16. 
Thus says the Lord, there's a prophetic phrase for you. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Israel had chosen their own path. And Jeremiah is saying, come back to the true and old path, starting with Abraham. And brothers and sisters, I don't think Jeremiah would change one word of that if he was standing in America. Come back to the ancient paths. When we're more informed by how corporate America runs companies to run our churches, we're off the path. When we don't look to Christ and turn to Christ for how to handle people in their situations, for how to handle sins that creep up in the church, why do, we, why do we have sex scandals in the church? Well, first of all, that's a great question. Why do we? Well, we are human. They might happen now and then. But to be honest, most of your sex scandals are connected to very high-profile faces that lead very large churches. This was not meant to be, where one person gets so much glory and honor and praise that we now, these, these okay, no, no, no. This is where I told you I got to um, stick to my, stick to my basic notes here. Um, Reel me in, ancient path. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Sexual sins rise up. And we cover them up like politicians lie, deny, and then witnesses go, oh, okay, actually something did happen. But seriously, that's not following Christ. Christ is always humble. Christ would confess, not that Christ would sin, but Christ would call for mercy and say, we made these mistakes we're going to make changes because the person running a church is not more important than the people in the church. And yet we've, we've gotten all this awry. We think that a face will get young people in. No, we need the friends. We need ourselves to embody Christ because that is what the world wants. They just don't know it. We're all looking for fake versions of Christ because we're not getting the real version of Christ. So Elihu angered me because I see in Elihu myself, I see in Elihu our culture, I see in Elihu our failures. And yeah, it just invokes something in me that I just, I shouldn't try to say, because that's when I go five hours long. Um, But let's, let's leave it here. We don't need reform. We need return. We need Christ every day, every moment. Every prayer Every Sunday service, every time you receive the body of Christ in your hands is a return to Christ. The friends need to repent. Elihu needs to repent. Repent means return. But so does Job. He needs to repent. And so do I and so do you. Actually, we don't just repent when the preacher first says the gospel and we say, this is the first time I heard it. I'm going to repent. We need to turn to Christ every day, every moment. Because oh, how my heart strays and wanders. Oh, how my thoughts go toward myself. And oh, how I don't think like Christ all the time. There is a constant call every day of my life and every moment of my life to continually turn. Oh, come, let us turn. Let us turn to the Lord. As Hosea says, Elihu needs to repent. Yeah, we, we all need to repent. So brothers and sisters, 
The correct church is not the one we make. It's not the one we create. It's not this new theory or this new idea. It's not, well, let's copy the young, cool churches. It's not, well, let's go back to the old dead ones. It's Christ. The right church and the right Christian is found in Christ. The church is his body. A Christian is his brother and his sister. How simple this is, but how hard it is. Because when we choose Christ over all else, it creates a crisis in here. Because suddenly, I cannot make that double-decker highway I wanted to. I got to walk the dusty road with my rabbi. I think I have better ways. But that's the folly of novelty. We think it's new. It's just a rehashing of the old, exchanging one mistake for another. Christ be in us. May Christ be with us. May Christ be above us. May Christ be beneath us. May Christ be behind us. May Christ be inside us. All glory and honor and praise to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit.